Welcome to Elixir Mix, your weekly Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson, and today we have on our panel Michael Reese. Hello, everybody. And Chuck Wood, of course, it has to be here. Yeah, I'm here, Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And we also have a special guest today, is Connor Rigby. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Connor, I know uh, Michael knows you and has some experience. So maybe Michael, you can kind of introduce Connor as a guest. Oh yeah, can we do it like conference style? I'll, I'll measure this based on how many eye rolls I get out of Connor. <laughs> uh, so Connor is deep into the world of Elixir and Nerves. Um, I believe that you've actually, are you a, a core member of the Nerves team? Yeah. So work, working on the Nerve product, Nerves project, um, also, Connor is someone who's well-known in the community for just being very experimental. So um, having done all sorts of things like getting Linux running on devices that you may not think Linux can run on, uh, building lots of projects. Uh, if you are ever in the mood for a good giggle, you can look up at his GitHub page and look at all the various things that he has started, and he'll, he'll publish them as prototypes, and you can then go and, and play from there. Um, and, uh, I think that has created a really kind of, uh, fun, uh, culture within the nerves community that is part of the overall Elixir community. So, um, that's something that I've always really appreciated. And then Connor, do I mean, can you maybe give us a little bit of uh, self intro, especially maybe around your current work? Yeah. So, um, aside from like doing random hobby projects, I actually do use nerves in production. I work for a company called Farmbot. We make, uh, uh, automated farming robots. Uh, so it's like a 3D printer, but you know, for plants and things like that. So that device itself does run nerves, um, which is kind of what drove me to begin using nerves. Um, I just do all the hobby stuff for fun. So, so this is interesting. I didn't realize that, um, because I, you know, I followed you back in when I remembered seeing tweets around things like a nerve system for the Nintendo 3DS. Yep. Um, was that after you had already started to work on FarmBot? Yeah, so I think I've worked at FarmBot for like a little, somewhere around three years now. Um, I've been working with nerves for longer than that. I don't know when the 3DS system uh, initially got bootstrapped. It was probably around the same time I started working for FarmBot. Um, or at least that's when it started working. So did you have a lot of experience doing any embedded systems outside of nerves or just with other types of hardware? Yeah. Yeah. I've been doing embedded, embedded Linux for quite a long time. So my job before I worked at Farmbox, um, I was doing like kind of a custom thing. I didn't know Erlang or Elixir existed yet, but I found, uh, I found the nerves project way back. I think it was 2014. They were still using uh, like, Elixir barely existed, and uh, it was it was still based around uh, based around Erlang, and so I started using it then, um, and then I don't know when I migrated to Elixir because I, I initially started with Erlang and migrated to Elixir fairly shortly after. Yeah, if I remember the history right, the Nerves project, um, Frank's initial versions were based around Erlang, right? Correct. And later yeah. moved to Elixir? Yeah, I want to say around 2014 is when it got the Nerves uh, badge. Uh, Justin Schneck, I think, is who initially kind of got it um, more Elixir-y and mixy. So I'm curious, never having done any like IoT or embedded development myself, um, 
you know, I, I hear about how awesome nerves is to work with, but I'm just curious from your experience where you've actually done both sides, what are some of the benefits that you've found with nerves that, you know, might not be obvious? Yeah. So I say this a lot, the observer is just a plus, like that is the coolest tool. Um, before, like there aren't any other comparable applications in any other project. So I've used like uh, ROS, which I think stands for robot operating system, though I'm not sure. Um, it's mostly C++ and Python. And uh, your only analytics into the system is just like sending log messages to some sort of shell or whatever. Like you, you don't get any any performance information. Like if something's not working, you have to like actually have a brain to debug what's going on. Um, with Elixir and Erlang, you just, you have a shell right there. You just ask it what's going on. So yeah, the runtime tooling is excellent. The build time tooling, really cool. I've uh, like, we use Buildroot, which is a package that's been around for probably like a million years. Um, and that's basically what builds the nerves or the nerves like build time is based on Buildroot. So that is like, we wrap it really well, but that wasn't like a huge thing for me. It was mostly the runtime tooling. Yeah, I'm I'm imagining some ancient Mayans uh, with the first versions of build root. You know, yeah, that's just... essentially what it is. Like Chuck Moore, probably he was in there. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, and and I have to say, the runtime tooling was one of the things that sold me. Um, the the production systems that I shipped uh, are mostly web based, but that same runtime tooling is so amazing to have there yeah. because so many of the projects I've ever shipped to production, like do I have a metric for whether or not this thing's working? Well, it just depends whether or not I ever thought about it and put right. one in. And if I didn't think about it ahead of time, I probably don't have any insight into it. Uh, and tools like um, IEX, like remote consoles, where you can actually open IEX terminal in the oh. process. Not, not like, oh, I'm on the same version of the code, but I'm literally in the same memory space and I can ask the different processes what they're doing. I can see the VM stats. Um, I think that's actually, uh, that's one of my favorite things in the overall Erlang and uh, Elixir ecosystem. And then it feels even maybe just one step more magical in the world of embedded devices compared to like in the past when I did things like Atmel chips. And oh, yeah. And like you compiled some crazy variant of C to get the code running and there's no runtime at all. Yeah. The runtime is just the code you wrote and that's it. So yep. um, there's benefits to that. You know, it can be a, a cool thing if you're really into that, but if you just want to get a product out the door, uh, it's really great to have some runtime tooling. Yeah. Having Linux underneath everything makes everything really nice. Uh, like, we could have built the robot using some like a STM32 or some other like embedded chip and done it all there. But man, it just would have been like, it would have taken so much longer. It would have never been nearly as robust. Like you get fault tolerance for free with nerves and, you know, Erlang Elixir, stuff like that. Like stuff that you would have had to like build fault codes in for. It's just there. Now, one thing I have to say is um, FarmBot is just really cool. When people talk about Elixir, they're like, man, have you seen like, you know, like when they talk about nerves, like, have you seen FarmBot? And I just think it's really cool. People need to go to their website. It's farm.bot uh, just to like see videos of this in action. It's like, it, we're it, the only one with the dot bot domain right now, I think too. So <laughs> did you guys pay for that? Like you manage the top level domain now? No, we don't manage the top level domain. I think Amazon owns it, but we're the only one that has, as far as I know, at least when we got, we were the, we're the first one. Sweet. Pioneers. Yeah, that's an important piece of information. <laughs> so I know with a lot of your work, you're also kind of maintaining other uh, libraries and things that are useful. And yeah, so, like most of them. Sorry? I'm just kidding. I, I maintain a lot of them, yeah. Yeah, and it's so like one of them, uh, like SQLite, I imagine that can be very handy on like an embedded type system. Yeah, yeah, it's very, um, it's very handy. Uh, S is a good alternative to SQLite, but if you don't want to learn S, boom, SQLite. Because S is a little bit complex and SQLite is not. Yeah, if you're already comfortable with SQL, yeah, where, where with uh, S, you're kind of having to generate your own filters. Yeah, it's, uh, S is a little tricky. Actually, I would, I would love to know, have you ever shipped any nervous devices using something like ETS or DETS? 
um, in a in a production setting, or have you almost always just gone for SQLite? Yeah. So for the initial, I think so. Brombox versioning is a little weird. Uh, we have hardware versioning and software versioning, and the software version pre v five, I think. So like two years ago, I uh, used ETS and uh, Amnesia actually. Um, both of those things were used in production, and they worked all right. Um, they they had their caveats, just like SQLite has its caveats. Um, I mostly like SQLite because I like Ecto. Ecto is a really nice project. Yeah, that's a good point. I, um, I, I so I was helping to maintain the SQLite X uh, package for a little while, um, which I originally got involved in just because I was looking for a package to work on, and I had some previous experience with SQLite. Um, but uh, but it was really good to to get um, when you when you offered to kind of take over some ownership of the SQLite Ecto package and the SQLite X package. Um, on hex that was uh, that was a big boon um, and so it's it's good to hear that that's in production do you know of anyone else using that in projects right now i do but i don't know if i'm allowed to say who they are they're pretty nda that's that's kind of happens a lot in the in the embedded world is people aren't super thrilled about sharing their embedded code so um it's very hush hush on a lot of projects um, partly because they they just I don't know, they kind of obscurity or they want to like, it's kind of considered secret sauce or what are some of the, I'm not, I'm not really sure. Um, the place that I worked at, when I was at CodeBeam, there was a company that was actually saying, we tell everybody we use Java or something else. And they considered Elixir to be their competitive, competitive advantage is what they were saying. That's funny. But, yeah, I'm but, not yeah, sure I what it is about it. Sorry. I didn't mean to talk over you. No problem. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is about embedded that uh, that just warrants everyone seems to be very uh, quiet about whatever they're doing. Um, there's a company, Rosepoint. They kind of uh, were among the first to use Nervous in production. Uh, Garth Hitchens, I believe, is his last name. Um, they they have a or at least I believe they're still shipping a Nerves product. Um, it's sort of an old version of Nerves, but it is a Nerves product still, and uh, they're very quiet about all of the all of the Nerve stuff they do. Um, we get a lot of people wanting to use a particular package, and then they'll fork it and then make a, quite a few changes to it. And then, like, changes that we could really use, but they can't contribute it back just due to their company not allowing it. Yeah, that's something I, at least I've noticed a little bit um, doing a bit of hobby nerves is that as I've talked to different people like Frank and Justin and yourself, um, it does seem to be a, just part of the ethos of embedded companies. Um, yeah, it's a little strange. Yeah, it, it's too bad because I think um, for people who are looking to learn nerves, it would be really helpful if they knew, for instance, oh yeah, there's multiple products shipping, um, you know, and these are their experiences. And I really appreciated that Rose Point early on did share. You know, Garth, as, as you mentioned, had had a couple of conference talks where he talked about their initial experience with nerves and how it worked really well and it was faster to get things into market. Um, I, I really wish that there could be more of that, but it feels like it's going to take a while because it's just going to be a matter of more of those companies getting comfortable with open source. Right. Yeah. I think Garth's talk 2015 at Lone Star Elixir was the first nerves talk I saw when he just like pushed a firmware update live on stage to a BeagleBone Black. And I was like, yes, that is exactly what I need. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's interesting because a lot of the early adopters of Elixir kind of came from the Ruby community. I think they inherited a lot of that kind of open and sharing of, hey, here's right. a gem. I'm, I'm extracting logic into a gem that can be reused. And you're kind of getting a lot of that with like hex packages too. So I think that's a, a beneficial thing that we've inherited as far as culture. So maybe it can kind of start to bleed into nerves. That'd be cool. Like, yeah. I mean, just like embedded open space source, so. Yes, and people should know that. So it's, talk about that a little bit and how, how you, how the business sees that. Yeah, we, I think use it as like kind of like a business, uh, rather than a negative, like a positive, like people are kind of stoked to see that the thing they're buying is open. You know, they might not even fully understand what that means, but they're like, Hey, that's a cool thing to say. 
it's kind of just like a, a nice talking point about the company. Um, it doesn't really have, I mean, as of right now, knock on wood, it doesn't have any negative drawbacks of fully open sourcing everything. Um, there are some weird things like we can't, like there are some weird requirements being fully open source. You can't use proprietary systems behind the scenes just by nature, right? So like, um, I'm not sure what an example would be because I don't use any of these things, but uh, like Jira is a paid service, isn't it? Yeah. yeah so we don't use Jira, um, any of those kind of things. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, can you, uh, one, one thing that comes up a lot. So I'm part of a, a meetup group where a bunch of nerves, mostly just hobbyists get together about once a month online and just chat about the projects we're working on. And one topic that comes up quite frequently is around testing. So, um, there's, uh, you know, testing for embedded devices is always a little bit different by nature, but then also you have a very different sort of deploy experience than if you come from a web background, like a lot of the Elixir community does. Right. Um, are there are there any things that you try to do in the way that you test? Do you specifically push for property based testing, um, or or anything else? Any other any other tools that you feel like have really paid dividends as you try to ship uh, your nerves code into production? So um, Jose wrote an article. I think I don't remember when it was like 2014, 2015 about mocking, um, and it's probably the first thing you read as an Elixir developer. Um, that is basically the best resource I can give about testing for nerves because it's uh, honestly the only way to test on nerves. There, they're like, there isn't really any other option. If you have like, so for example, FarmBot uses a UART uh, device to talk to a motor controller um, to, to even test that without it being plugged in, you have to mock that library. You have to, you, you have to sufficiently wrap it in a way that is testable. So you just have to write, like you can't just write your code and then test it later. You kind of have to start with testing. Um, that said, I'm not a great TDD developer. Um, I try to say I do it, but with nerves, you get a lot of, uh, you, there's just a, a pretty large disconnect between actually testing on hardware and what, like, what are you actually testing? Cause a lot of times you end up just testing for typos, which I mean is good in itself, but the compiler checks for typos. Do you guys um, do any sort of like uh, releasing code to some test devices that you can, that you can watch or put through their paces before rolling you up to the, the public devices? Yeah. yeah. So we, um, we have probably 10, ish farm bots um, that we do all of our QA on. Um, I do a combination of, I have Circle CI that runs like actual tests, um, but obviously those can't catch things in real life. Like, you know, when you tell the motor controller to go to a specific position and it just doesn't, like you can't test that. Um, you, you just have to, like you have, there has to be a human looking at it and say, wow, that didn't work, what went wrong? Um, so yeah, we have we have a combination of both. Um, I've also I'm also on the Nerves Hub core team, which if you haven't seen yet, Nerves Hub is super cool. It's like I like to call it uh, like Heroku, but for Nerves devices. Um, it has a lot of really cool features that um, that are going to allow better kind of QA and testing. So Justin's been kind of pioneering this feature, but the idea is that you have like a subset of devices on your Nerves Hub account that have a special version of your firmware that can run X units, but on the device itself rather than on your host machine um, or some test framework. We, I, I'm assuming X unit. I haven't used this yet, but I'm assuming it's X unit and you can run your actual tests on devices. And then, you know, it reports up somewhere to like say code coverage or whatever uh, about your testing, all of your tests that pass or fail or whatever. That's so I think really that's gonna cool. be a cool feature, yeah. Yeah, that, that makes a big difference. You know, when you're trying to, you know, you, you, that, that was one of the things I became kind of amazed with when I started to learn about microcontrollers and, you know, like the software that runs on those that, you know, you have to take the physical world into account. 
right? right? Like there's electricity yeah. and there's temperatures. And when the temperature changes, my chip runs faster or slower. So my time right. gets off, you know, it's like, so it's a whole nev nother level. So I, I'm just, I don't know. Is there anything you want to say about that? So, you know, like those comics you might see on like XKCD or something that says like, you know, your unit tests pass, but your integration tests fail. And it's like some guy reaching through a fence and opening the lock. <laughs> it's basically a lot of that, like have like infinite unit tests, but there's still no way I can catch a problem in the real real world, like something catastrophic happening, like the bot ripping itself out of the ground or something. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's a weird um, it's a weird thing, especially when explaining it to like say a web developer. Like for some reason, it's just uh, like as someone who's only ever worked on Ruby on Rails, just it, it is basically impossible for them to understand that there are just some things you cannot test. Um, and it gets, it gets a little tricky. Yeah. So, um, I'm, I'm fascinated to hear, uh, more about nerves hub as well. So, um, one of the things that I was really excited about for nerves hub, um, those who haven't seen it, part, part of what it's trying to do is it kind of keeps track of your devices that you um, have running in the field. Uh, so like in FarmBot's example, um, end customers, anyone on the internet can basically order one and then install it in their backyard. And if something goes wrong, Connor doesn't fly to their backyard, I, I don't believe, uh, on a drone to fix this. <laughs> Not yet. Uh, maybe that feature is coming. Yeah, we, we've, we've done a couple house calls, but usually we <laughs> Yeah. So, um, so then one of the things that comes up with that, as you can imagine, is um, there's, there's just more variability. You control less of the environment where your code's running. And in this yeah, case, where the, robot, yeah, where, the, where the robot's running and you, you still want to provide things like continuous delivery. So you still want to provide updates to those devices um, and uh, you want to provide some security around that. So one of the things I know about Nerves Hub is that uh, is that Frank was working on a little embedded chip that would actually be on the device and it will be a secure key, meaning it, it like has a private key, it can sign things for you, but it's impossible to get the key back out. And right. that becomes a, a good way to verify that I'm shipping this update only to the devices that I originally shipped out um, because right. uh, I can verify that they can still sign things correctly. Um, are you guys um, using some of that or any of that so far at FarmBot or are you waiting for it to mature a little bit more? So FarmBot, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Nerves Hub does enforce key signing whether you have the special device or not. Um, uh, FarmBot ships on a Raspberry Pi, so uh, basically security is uh, a gray area. I won't say there's none of it, but there's not a lot of it. I mean, you just walk up to the device and take the SD card out and security owned haha -ha. <laughs> uh, so yeah the raspberry pi kind of limits the amount of security you can pack into it um but we will hopefully be using the nerves key on our next batch of uh, production devices uh the nerves key i'm sorry that's what it, that's what frank calls the the little hardware key um basically either way if you use nerves hub you have to have signed firmwares and uh, that that like there's no way around that but the nerves key is um, it stores it stores the validation on the key itself um, this allows like so if for some reason your firmware gets leaked or whatever it you know you, you can't decrypt it without the key all these things um, and uh, industrial applications and closed source uh, you know people who don't open source their firmware are super into this kind of thing. They, it's basically a requirement for them. Interesting. So Ner Nerves Hub is allowing, I mean, as we talked about before, there's a little bit of this uh, cultural difference between some of like the Elixir community, which is very into open source and publish everything on Hex that you can, right. and the embedded devices world, which is traditionally very closed down. Um, and it sounds like Nerves Hub is an interesting bridge and um, FarmBot is not into closed down source, obviously, <laughs> but, um, but you guys are still using it for some of those features. And does that mean that you basically have like an RSA key pair that is on the SD card that you shipped in your firmware? Yeah, so, um, it's, so it actually for FarmBot get provisioned at runtime uh, because we have some weird, uh, I won't go too much into the, our weird requirements, but because of it being open source, 
We also open source the hardware so people don't have to buy the kit directly from us. They can just build one in their backyard if they want, which means that they can just go buy any old Raspberry Pi, not directly from us. So you, you have to flash the firmware on the device yourself when you get it. Um, this means that it won't be configured with our Nerves Hub keys. So we have to provision them at runtime. It's a little weird. Um, most companies will not do this. Uh, actually, I'm pretty sure Farmbot's the only one that's ever done that. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a really weird situation to be in because for about a minute and a half, you can have a Farmbot that's connected to Farmbot's uh, backend services but can't receive OTAs over the air updates. So it, it's a little weird and backwards. But um, yeah, so it just stores the keys in like a secret area of the SD card. It's not like it's not like there's a, a file called like, you know, public key dot pub and dot priv on the <laughs> SD card. Like you got to go rooting around from they're there. They're not particularly hard to find. But um, yeah, and so that's either way, like because Nerves Hub has a, a WebSockets kind of situation going on with Phoenix channels where there's always a connection open between your device and a nerve sub, or as long as your device is connected to the internet, obviously. Um, and to be connected, to be like a valid device, it has to have these keys. Um, so you have to somehow get the keys on there while also uh, not having the keys to begin with. It's kind of weird. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but, that, but uh, uh, like, it, this is interesting to hear about from my perspective, because on the one hand, you're working around some interesting requirements. You're, you are different than a lot of the other companies shipping devices. Um, but, but to me, I, I really hope that the message, um, you know, I, I really like if you go to FarmBot, that message of openness and, yeah. hey, if you want to go build this yourself, you can. If you want to 3D print some of the repair parts yourself, you can do that. I think that message is really resonating. Uh, and I hope that that will turn into additional companies choosing to take on a little bit more of that market positioning. Um, because I do think it's a, a market advantage for FarmBot to be able to say, hey, we're, we're fully open source. Um, and I imagine, I know a little while ago, FarmBot was, was, had some sort of interaction with NASA. I don't know very much about this. Um, maybe you can tell us a little bit more, but I would imagine, I know that NASA is required to be open in, in, a, in certain ways. And so I imagine that your openness made that partnership more feasible. Yeah, um, the trip to NASA, that was, let's see, a year or so ago, maybe two. Um, they had this open source summit, I believe is what they called. So NASA is traditionally very closed source. They don't want any of their precious codes being released, probably due to, you know, the Cold War, right? We don't want the Russians getting to the moon first, so we don't want, you know. Um, so... Recently, over the course of, I don't know, maybe the last five to 10 years, NASA has become a little bit more okay with uh, open source software as they realize they have a smaller and smaller budget and less and less time and resources to build things themselves. Um, they haven't quite embraced opening of their side. Like they're, they're willing to take the open data, but not give it back, which is a little weird. They haven't quite figured it out yet. Um, but yeah, so we went there along with like MIT and a couple of other uh, groups uh, based around like agriculture and farming. And uh, they want to, I'm not sure they know what they want, but they know they liked it. And they know that, uh, I don't know what, we haven't heard a whole lot back from them after we all went. Like they shipped like five or six companies out there. We took a tour of the facility and they're like, we want to do something, but they couldn't quite pinpoint exactly what it was they wanted out of all of us. Maybe, maybe we'll see FarmBot on Mars. Yeah, that was, uh, there was, the, there was, so MIT has this project called Food Computer, and um, it's kind of similar to uh, FarmBot in that it's an open source project for growing food. Um, they're approach was to rather than physically control the plants like FarmBot does, they control the environment in which the plants grows in. So like they have something like it's like the size of a mini fridge, I think, that uh, controls like a few 
plants kind of they control the environment around the plant rather than the plant itself um so nasa's idea was like hey why don't you guys just like put the robot inside the food computer and then we'll put it on iss and we'll send it to mars and uh like they were super into not doing the thing themselves they were kind of like trying to make us do it for them essentially wow um yeah we haven't heard a whole lot back from either company i'd like to progress more on that but you know Mm -hmm. both of us are a for-profit company and they're kind of you know, NASA doesn't have a huge budget, so. Right. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs. And this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash elixir. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through TripleByte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. So one of the things I did want to mention about Nerves Hub um, that I think is worth pointing out because it is open source, like you do have these companies that are uh, more secretive by nature or by culture. Um, but I, as I understand it, Nerves Hub can be self-hosted, right? So Correct. That's, that's one of the big selling points, yeah. Um, it's we have like so farmbot uses the open free uh like the production available version of nurse hub but a lot of companies aren't into like they don't want their closed source software being hosted on the same server as like my weirdo open source software they're like "Mm, i don't know about that (laughs) um so yeah, you're able to you're fully able to host your own nerves hub instance um and we fully expect that to happen like uh, Frank Hunliff, he works at Smart Rent, um, and they're you know one of the traditionally closed. Like they're more open than most in that they're allowing their developers to work on, you know, these open source projects such as Nerves Hub. Like Smart Rent is one of the companies that kind of initially got the Nerves Hub project started. Um, so they are o- more open than most, but they're still not willing to let their firmware just be hosted on any old server. So they're going to be running their own instance of Nerves Hub, from what I understand. That, so um, thank you for giving some of the feedback on that. That It's really interesting to hear, you know, I think of Nerves Hub as kind of one thing, but it is kind of this whole spectrum of running yeah, it yourself, it, running it with like really strict, strictly following the key protocol of, of signing things and provisioning them ahead of time versus all the way to FarmBot's usage of like, oh, we'll use the public Nerves Hub, but we're going to, you know, do a kind of custom key provisioning um, process uh, which again i just think is amazing that people can totally go build their own farm bot and and you guys are actually willing to let it connect to your back end and let it be managed by your back end yeah what gets even weirder is when people want to host their own back end of farm bot to connect their home built farm bot to and they're like how do i get otas like well now you also have to host this other completely different thing that you had no idea existed <laughs> <laughs> we have a hard time managing our resources on, uh, you know, like how far do we go helping someone who's literally never touched a computer before set up their own instance of a rail server? Mm. <laughs> I can imagine that not being an, an easy process. Yeah. We, we've had to kind of cut back on it a little bit because like we just, when we're doing that, we just don't have time to, you know, help support like the actual project itself. Like if we're just spending all of our time being DevOps engineers for, you know, some dude who's never touched a computer before, it gets a little uh, um, annoying. Yeah, maybe it uh, becomes a profit center. And you're just like, well, you can pay for this kind of support. And- we've, been, we've been considering doing that, yeah. Yep. We just, I think we have five developers on the FarmBot team right now, so it's not even like, like if we could help, we would. We just, like, there's not a whole lot of people, there's not a whole lot of man hours available. 
So you mentioned in there that there was a, a Rails server as well. I'm just curious, like if you're if there's anything you can say kind of about how the systems are kind of work at FarmBot and what kind of, you know, where is Elixir? Is Elixir primarily just in the nerves piece or anything about right. that? Right. Yeah. So let's see. Hold on. So we use Rails as the back end. Uh, the front end is like a web app. It's like a TypeScript project. Hmm. Um, Elixir is only on the device itself. And we have uh, RabbitMQ also because Rails can't do many connections very well. Right. As you've probably seen before. <laughs> um, so yeah, we use, we use RabbitMQ to kind of bridge the two. Um, there's, we, we've talked about um, rebuilding parts of the Rails side in like say Phoenix or something, but again, we just don't have the manpower to do it right now. We might need to in the future. Right now it's, it's working okay. Well, that's all really, really cool stuff. I I'm, I'm, thank you for sharing a lot of that. Um, one of the things I do want to kind of come back to is we talked about in the intro, uh, Michael has kind of mentioned that you play with a lot of unusual things. Uh, <laughs> And that's really cool. You know, like uh, when I think of TDD, I think of, uh, you know, TDD makes sense when you have, when you kind of have a, an idea of what it is you're building, uh, but it doesn't really make sense when you're kind of doing a spike, just like, uh, can I even make this work? And so I, I totally understand what you're saying before about like, well, I try to do TDD, but what if you're doing so many like spike oriented stuff, you know, maybe you can't, but uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear about some of the recent projects that you've kind of launched and shown and shared with people and just anything that you have going on? I won't say launched, but I've well, abandoned aired. a lot of products. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, so I think probably the most recent one that uh, everyone kind of has seen is I did like an Elixir open CV wrapper and some other like computer vision stuff with uh, scenic. So I don't know when I started that or when I abandoned it, but um, probably a couple of months now. Um, yeah, so I was super excited to see Scenic come out. If you haven't seen Scenic, it's a, it's a open source project like um, for user interfaces and other things of the source. It's a really, uh, really neat thing, like alternative to say doing like a web app for a user interface you can use Elixir to do uh, web, or you can use Elixir to do interfaces that just run directly on Elixir itself rather than having to do HTML, JavaScript, all that nonsense. Um, so that's a really cool project that I've been just like having a lot of fun with. Uh, I, I did uh, facial detection with it, which was super cool. Like just seeing Elixir detecting faces was a really neat project. Um, it was not very performance, but I didn't try to make it very performance. I hacked it together in like four hours, but, um, just seeing it, there was just a really cool thing. Like I expect it'll be like, if someone really wants to, I'm, I'd be happy to, you know, put more time into it. Uh, cause I think it would be really cool for like a nerves device. Um, I know very, they're a consultancy that have shipped a couple of nerves devices, at least one or two nerves devices. And they did like a, a facial detection system for a beer tap, if I remember correctly. Um, but I don't think any of that got open sourced. And like it kind of got me thinking like, man, this is a cool use case for nerves, like having nerves detect a face, do a thing, open a door, whatever. Um, so I kind of started all that. I got it uh, I got it up and running. It's not great right now, but I mean, that's, I, I do that a lot where I'll start a project and get it to like a running state and then just like, well, if someone else wants to push this over the edge, go ahead. I, so I want to say a big thank you actually for that, um, for you helping to cultivate that culture. I think um, so many people as I've done nerves, uh, hobby work, uh, a lot of the hang up, a lot of the difficulty getting into it is just not knowing like, was well, this idea possible? Is that idea possible? Yeah, I don't. Uh, I try not to think if it's possible or not. I just go with the assumption that it is possible <laughs> until I am proven otherwise, which I'm usually not proven otherwise. Turns out. 
Yeah. And, um, but I think as you do that, and as you create all of these um, breadcrumb trails behind you, uh, GitHub repositories, uh, I've at least benefited from at least one of those in the past personally, just because I was like, oh, I wonder if anyone's ever done something like this. Um, and, and now when I have that question around nerves or embedded devices, I usually just try to search Twitter for your Twitter handle and whatever, whatever like Lego Mindstorms. Could I do this on a Lego Mindstorms? I don't know. Connor's probably tried to do it. Um, and so I think those, uh, those are actually really beneficial because it helps a lot of other people who, um, who maybe are a little bit more worried about, oh, is this possible? And just seeing that somebody got it running. Um, and having a direction to run in is a, is a big benefit. So I'll just say a big thank you on behalf of uh, on myself and also some of the NERVS community, at least, um, for building a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I'm happy to see someone's getting some use out of it. Um, a lot of time I started with like intent to use it at like FarmBot or at some other project that I'm working on. And then like it just gets backburnered to the point of where it's it's just a hobby thing at this point. Like the FarmBot has a camera on the on the end of it, and we do some uh, object detection. But right now it's done using uh, Python and uh, OpenCV, which has no Elixir bindings at all. Well, there's OpenCV bindings for Elixir now, but I wouldn't I wouldn't ship them in production, being that I wrote them. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we use Python to do our object detection. And one day I'd like to have that done just all with Elixir, all with natively, like not have to shell out to Python for this kind of thing. Um, so that's kind of what started that project. And uh, I've made some progress on it, but it's nowhere near production ready yet. Like I'm not really interested in putting what is currently there on all of the production farm bots. Um, so yeah, along those lines, actually, I'm curious, um, generally when people interact with a C library from Elixir, you kind of have two major options. You can either build it as a port where it runs in a separate Linux process and you communicate with it versus um, having it run as part of the VM. As yeah, NIF. I'm full team NIF. Yeah, you, you, so is it, are the Elixir CV bindings, OpenCV bindings, they're a, a NIF? Yeah, they're a NIF. Um, I like ports, but for the stuff that I want to do, I usually need something a little bit faster than ports. Cool. So is, is speed the, the main benefit you're getting with that? I like the API for using NIFs better. Um, ports seem super uh, kind of like not hacky, but like you're using STDN and STD out, which if anyone's never done C before, uh, well, I mean, that, that goes to other languages, but like imagine like if you're trying to write a Ruby port you would do, uh, I think, puts is the print string mm -hmm. function in Ruby. Like, you would just, like, puts your data. And then on the Elixir side, you're essentially doing gets. And, it, like, it's just, it's weird. <laughs> it feels weird. It's not, it's not, like, what I would normally think for C bindings. So, I mean, it works for some things. A lot of the Nerves projects, actually, I don't think we have, on the Nerves root, or the Nerves root organization, I don't think we use any ports. We have quite a few C dependencies, um, but oh, I'm sorry, we don't have any NIFs. I, I misspoke. We only use ports because they are arguably safer. Like when you write a NIF and you mess something up, the whole VM goes down, um, which is less than ideal in a system that's supposed to be fault tolerant. <laughs> um, but there are certain things that's uh, like recently um, Elixir Ale, which was a project for inter interacting with GPIO on uh, embedded devices, not necessarily just nerves, but anything with Linux on it can run Elixir Ale. Uh, Frank renamed it to Elixir Circuits and rewrote the GPIO, SPI, and I2C code in in NIFs because the old versions weren't quite quick enough. So speed is something you get with a NIF, but I prefer it just for the API personally. You get a more uh, foreign function interface kind of situation. Yeah, I'll say one other one other reason that um, listeners might consider uh, when they're thinking about ports and NIFs. Um, so I was recently I did a nurse project. Um, I have there's a school bus that comes to pick up my son from my house. I have a son who's autistic, and um, and when the school bus comes, we have like no windows on the front of our house, so we never know when it's there. So I built a little webcam, and I wanted to add. Um, well, the first version is it's just kind of it'll just stream basically to my wife's phone so that she can see when the when the bus has arrived 
And um, when I was getting networking, one day one of my kids went upstairs and they uh, were messing with the device and they unplugged the Raspberry Pi camera from the Nerf's device. Oh, man. And when they did that, it crashed the C code that was controlling the camera. But, um, but that, uh, that project, it's called PyCam on Hex, if anyone's interested. Um, it actually does run as a port, and so it's actually passing the frame, the JPEG frames uh, over that standard in, standard out. And so what was interesting is as I plugged it back in, and um, my device continued, had continued operating that whole time. It had, it had continuously tried to restart, and the camera would like wait a few seconds to, try to hear from the hardware, and then the C code would crash because it wasn't built to handle people, you know, they didn't think of my five-year-old when they were writing that C library. <laughs> and the test couldn't catch it. Yeah, there's, there's no unit test for five-year-olds, um, for sure. And so it was amazing to me to, to see that kind of level of resiliency in a project where I hadn't thought very much about that as someone putting it together. I just kind of hacked together a webcam over a weekend and was trying to solve a problem at my house. So, um, so I think it's amazing when, when community members like Frank really put in the time to make a very solid NIF. Um, and they're going to do a lot of work to make sure that it's very stable and doesn't ever crash. Um, and I have never heard of anyone seeing crashes with Elixir Ale or with uh, Elixir Circuits. So um, I'm glad that people will put in the time. But, um, but one other reason that you might consider it is if there's some existing C library that is maybe doesn't have the best reputation for fault tolerance and you want to stick it into a fault tolerance system. Yeah, there are certainly examples of libraries out there that I would uh, probably not write as a NIF, either just due to my un misunderstanding of them or, you know, they are known for things like crashes. Like OpenCV is a really uh, well put together project. So I was cool with that being, you know, that being a NIF. OpenCV core probably is not going to crash. I mean, people use it in production systems. So, you know. I guess it's just a level of risk you're willing to take. SQLite is a NIF as well, actually, um, which is another library I help maintain. And uh, that's never given me any issues. Yeah, it's so a really good point. I'm, I'm waiting to see when you have, uh, you're using OpenCV and you're doing bus recognition. It's, it's on the way. I, uh, I had one false start with it, trying to use something that was not OpenCV. Um, and just couldn't get the training accurate enough. So it was actually just more annoying than helpful because it would notify us like if just a car drove by on, uh, yeah. on the road. Just any kind of motion. <laughs> <laughs> Too many false positives. Yeah. So, uh, but anyway, well, uh, I'll take another crack at it and, and maybe there will be a, an open source buscam.bot domain before too long. We'll see. <laughs> Uh, well, there, there's one other topic I was hoping we could we could touch on before we wrap this up. Um, I, I saw recently that you retweeted some information about the GRISP board. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, GRISP is a different approach to putting Erlang and Elixir on embedded devices than NERVs. It doesn't try to have a Linux kernel running from right. what I understand. Can you just talk to us a little bit about uh, what got you excited about that project? Man, I love Pierre. He's a cool guy. Um, he's the one who does GRISP. Uh, so I first talked to him, I think, Erlang Factory, when it was still called Erlang Factory in like 2015. Um, and I saw that he's creating this project and I was just stoked. Like, I don't think I'll use it personally, but man, I'm just cool. I'm, I think it's so cool that it's going to exist. So basically, the idea is that there's no overhead between pressing power and Erlang starting, right? Like, there's no operating system, no kernel in between. So, I mean, like, there's some, there's quite a few hurdles to jump over. Like, Erlang assumes that there's a kernel and there's an operating system underneath. So, like, bridging that gap must have been, like, a huge undertaking for him. Um, but I think it's going to be a super cool thing. You know, you get real-time real time guarantees, like, hard real-time, not, you know, what you say real-time when you have, like, a WebSocket API, like, hard real-time where something needs to take exactly 0.2 milliseconds and it takes that long. And I think Erlang is a really cool fit for that once it gets like up and running. I know Grisp V1 has been up and running and he's shipping products with it. Um, I think mostly for industrial automation, but Grisp V2 is using like a, a Linux compatible board, which means that nerves can run on the Grisp board itself. Nerves won't be running in the same hard real time environments as 
GRISP is, but um, it, it'll be running Linux kernel still, but it'll be cool to see those two communities kind of exist on the same, on the same device. Yeah, I'm really excited to see the, the Kickstarter they had for GRISP v2 has already been matched. It's going to close five days from when this is being recorded. So it's probably closed by the time any listeners hear this. Um, but we'll, we'll drop a link in the show notes. Um, definitely an interesting thing to check out. Um, and, and just an interesting alternative, like you said, to the, to the world of nerves, which is um, very friendly to, to the, you know, we, we live right now in a time when there's lots of Linux compatible boards that you can cheaply right. get a hold of. And that's amazing for getting up and running with prototypes. Um, Grist is a really interesting alternate way of, of getting up and running with a project pretty quickly. And, um, and I, I did see that Frank mentioned there's, there is some compatibility there. Um, it sounds like they would actually, in that case, ship a really a unikernel of some kind. It's just so that nerves can still make those assumptions about the world. Uh, the idea is going to be that there's you like you have to choose one or the other. So um, you'll have like the option of using the GRISP runtime, which is just bare Erlang. But if you don't need that, you can also run the Linux kernel just like uh, like on nerves. Um, that, no, there won't be. You, you won't be able to do both of them at the same time. There won't be any like custom unit kernel or anything like that. Um, you have to choose one or the other. But the idea is that you do get to choose one or the other. So, like you know, if you're looking to ship a board, like right now, your options are fairly limited to like what device you choose. You can like if you're not looking to spend a bunch of time porting nerves, which believe it or not isn't actually that difficult. Um, but like, so shipping the Raspberry Pi, I wouldn't recommend like shipping a product on it. It's a cool device, but, uh, it is not necessarily the most reliable if you're trying to ship like tens of thousands of them. Um, on the other hand, there's the BeagleBone Black series of boards, which are super battle hardened. Those are more than capable of shipping devices on, um, but they're a bit expensive. And, uh, there's, uh, a fair bit of R and D needing to be done to make like, to get the initial system up and running. And so hopefully with GRISP, the idea is that uh, we'll both have like a shared, we'll both have the shared development board that we can both kind of, both being GRISP and NERVS kind of document how to get started in hardware development. Because that's a big barrier to entry is deciding what's like, how, like, where do I find the hardware? How do I source it? How do I, how do I get it with the correct things on it. Um, right now the options are, you know, like you have the BeagleBone Black is kind of what most of the companies shipping nerves use. I think all of them actually are using nerve or using the BeagleBone Black series of boards. Um, and it'll be cool to have another option. Nice. Well, I know we're going to have to close up, but one of the things I just kind of want to touch on is, are there any projects that you're playing with on the side right now or have an idea for that you just think is kind of cool and interesting? Um, not that I'm willing to share yet. <laughs> Maybe next time. Awesome. Oh, uh, he's back in the closed source world. <laughs> <laughs> it's open thought, right? Yeah. All right. Well, uh, let's move to picks then. Michael, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so my first pick is a conference talk that happened at CodeBeam San Francisco pretty recently. Um, so there was a a talk by um, C. De Groot, um, and he talked about mixing C and Elixir, and he spiked out this idea, which he also readily um, mentions as not being production ready. But uh, but he uses some he uses the Elixir macro system to generate C code and then generate a port, and so he can basically write some code and and any sort of like really basic data transformations. Um, yeah, or basically he can port that or generate C code from that. And, uh, and then um, under the hood, it'll compile a port program for you and handle the like Erlang term to binary and binary back to terms so that you can communicate with it. And he has an, a, an example where he's rendering um, like 50 little birds, kind of, these like he calls them boids, um, and they're doing kind of a visualization of flocking kind of behavior. And he was rendering that um, using something similar to Scenic, but it's not Scenic. And this was kind of his project for getting that up and running. I thought it was just a really, I, I had never thought about using the Elixir macro system 
as a way to generate code out that runs outside of Elixir. And uh, I just thought that was really cool. Another great example of someone just being experimental and starting off with the hypothesis that this is possible. And sure, of course, there's got to be a way to make this work. And, um, and then sharing something with the community. So uh, I found it a really entertaining talk, uh, interesting, and um, probably has some application somewhere. Uh, but for me, mostly just fun. Nice. Yeah, uh, th that is really interesting. I'm gonna have to check that out. Um, but one of the things that I, what I was gonna share was, um, in case anyone hasn't heard, uh, at, as of the recording of this, this is on April 23rd, uh, recently, it was announced uh, that Joe Armstrong passed. And Joe Armstrong, if you weren't aware, was one of the three co-creators of Erlang. And he's very out, very engaged with the community, continued to, even in his retirement, he would come and speak at conferences. He's very open and friendly. And so what I'm picking is the announcement by uh, Francesco Cesarini, who we've talked with before. He is uh, one of the the CTO basically of Erlang Solutions. And he announced it and it's a great Twitter thread because a lot of people is kind of adding their thoughts and memories and sharing their experiences with Joe Armstrong. And while I've never personally met him, I benefited a lot just because of what he has built, but also because of his writings, they have very much influenced me. So I just wanted to kind of uh, pick that little announcement. And then, you know, a lot of people have been sharing blog posts and things like that about their memories and their experiences with Joe. And so I just think that's uh, something to, to, I don't know, pay respect to is just and, and appreciate what we have with Elixir and what it is built on that is truly built on the shoulders of giants. And that's my pick. Chuck, do you have something you want to say? Yeah, it's, it's interesting uh, with this announcement. I saw it as well on Twitter. Um, and it was Francesco's, um, tweet that where I saw it, it was just interesting too, cause, uh, there have been a few other notable people in the various communities, JavaScript and Ruby in, in particular. And what's interesting is that, you know, even years after some of these people passed away, um, you still see people like, um, commenting on issues on their GitHub accounts or things like that. Just, you know. Um, sharing a story or just, you know, hey, we miss you or whatever. And uh, yeah, it's it, it, anyway, um, it, it's terrific to see that he was able to have this kind of an impact. And uh, yeah, um, that, you know, that people can share their thoughts and feelings. Um, yeah, it, it's also interesting to me as well, since I'm going to be I'm heading to a funeral on Thursday, my wife's grandmother passed away. And so, you know, you see again, you know, what people mean to other people. And that's kind of the biggest life hack out there is just uh, recognizing what matters, you know, and who matters. And then, um, you know, doing, doing what you can do to have an impact yourself. So yeah, anyway, making a difference. Yep. I'm kind of rambling, but that that's kind of some of the thoughts I have. Um, I'm also going to pick, um, Michael has a meetup group that he mentioned it already, um, where they do the hacking, um, with nerves and IOT. And so if you want to check that out, um, you can, um, I'm sure he has the link more readily than I do. So I'll let him put it in the show notes in the chat, but, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty awesome. So, um, I went and joined up and of course I miss all the meetings cause that's the way I am. <laughs> But uh, anyway, I, I love the idea and I really want to show up and, and do some interesting stuff. So yeah, that's my pick. We'll be happy to have you, Chuck, when you find the time. Yeah, things are a little bit nuts right now. Oh, one other thing I'm going to throw out there. Um, I've been working on a podcasting system. You can find it at podwrench.com, um, like wrench like the tool. And uh, I'm going to be looking for beta testers here within the next few weeks. So if you are interested in uh, starting a podcast, and helping me beta test the software. Um, it is written in Rails and not in Phoenix. Um, but uh, anyway, um, so yeah, so I'm working on that. So you definitely go check that as, out as well. Um, I'm going to be offering kind of the, um, you know, here are the management tools for a podcast. And then here's the full service offering where we do all the production and show notes and everything for you. So um, anyway. Uh, the, the main pitch is that 
Um, you should be able to show up and be an expert in the things you want to show up and be an expert on. And that doesn't include audio production. So we'll go help you find sponsors. We'll use the sponsorship money to pay um, the production team. Um, we'll, we'll take a, you know, a, a share of that and then you'll get the rest. So cool. that, that way, you know, as you get going, as you build an audience and as you're able to monetize or we're able to monetize for you, um, then we can take all that headache away and you can just be awesome as a podcaster. So anyway, um, that, that's it. That's all I've got. That's awesome. Connor, do you have anything you can share? Yeah, actually, I think yesterday, uh, April 22nd or maybe the 21st, I'm not sure. Um, someone released a project called GB Studio, which is a, uh, a Game Boy, original Game Boy kind of uh, game creator and editor. Um, it's, I believe, was released on the 30th anniversary of the original Game Boy. And uh, it's a super cool project. I've been building a couple original Game Boy games over the course of like probably five or six years in, uh, in pure assembly because there was no C compiler. Wow. So I think, I think this is a, it's a really cool project. Um, I haven't used it yet, but it looks like it's going to be really fun. I'm going to try it. So is this a lot, you're able to flash these onto like little uh, uh, cards that actually stick in the hardware? Yeah. So you can get, uh, I would imagine it produces, I haven't used it yet, so I'm not sure, but I would imagine it creates ROM files that you can like play in a, uh, in an emulator for testing mm -hmm. as well as um, you can flash them to a real cartridge and play it. All right. Well, Connor, it was a pleasure talking with you today. If uh, people want to follow you online or connect with you, where should they go to do that? Uh, just look at my GitHub, uh, github.com slash Connor Rigby. All right. We will have a link to that in the show notes. All right. Well, that is it for today. We hope you'll join us next week on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.